Dear Father, as we discuss and think just now about um, probably the most important subject of all, what is revealed about you and the cross, what is the message of the cross, please enlighten our minds and give us a clarity of understanding. Amen. Well, of course, a year and a half ago, for those of you who are second-year students, we uh, began with the book of John. And the thinking was, before we go through the Old Testament, let's begin with the book that probably has the clearest understanding about the character of God. And I think that's the book of John. So we started there, then we went through the Old Testament. Now we're back uh, through John. And um, John is just such a... Um, oh, if I had to pick one book that um, says the most important things. It would be the book of John. So before we get to Gethsemane and the cross, I just want to go back a little bit and mention a few things in John. If we want to make a case that Jesus is God, I think John is probably the best book to do that. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And John, so many times, uh, this clearly for him was something that uh, crystallized because he makes this point again and again. And later on in the first chapter, no one has ever seen God. Of course, you read through the Old Testament, haven't lots of people seen God? There are all kinds of descriptions of people seeing God. But I think the meaning here is no one has really understood God. No one has really seen God. The only Son who is the same as God, the same as God, and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Why did Jesus come? He came to reveal the truth about what God is like. He came to make him known. And so many statements in the book of John, like this one, the Father and I are one. Uh, It's a a repetitive theme. The Gospel of John is really entirely different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those overlap so much. John covers different territory. And just to look at some of the differences here um, and, and maybe why that's important, John, several times, will say statements like this. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was sitting next to Jesus. Now, he's writing this, so he doesn't say himself, but just the one whom Jesus loved. And there are four examples of this. I just put in two, but at the cross, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. So he said to his mother, he is your son. And we might wonder, um, did Jesus have favorites? You know, he loved this one more. This one here, this one down here. Um, I think the meaning is John probably loved Jesus the most of the disciples and had was closest, really, in heart to Jesus. It's just like when Jesus comes back, he says to some people, go away, I never knew you. Okay, of course he knows them, knows everything about them. Okay, but it reflects a closeness and an intimacy. And I think the Gospel of John is written by someone who really understood and who is really close to Jesus. So when we look at the differences, just briefly, these things are not in the other Gospels. The wedding in Cana, Cana, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, that whole story is in John. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Now, why would this be in John? Um, First of all, weren't the disciples offended? He's talking to a woman and she's a Samaritan. John thinks that that is significant and it's in there. The man crippled 38 years at the pool of uh, Bethesda. The woman caught in adultery. Now, there's a story that does not fit into any model of what God is like in that time, that God would say to a woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you. Okay, that's, that's just off the charts in terms of this is what God is like. John, this was very important. He put this in here. 
The whole John chapter 8 is just such a contentious argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's fascinating. And it ends with Jesus saying, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And the significance of those words, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I am the I am. And uh, of course, you remember, they picked up stones to kill Jesus at this blasphemy. The man born blind, why is it in the book of John? Well, remember the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus' response, he's blind. It has nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. Again, it did not fit the paradigm of the time, which is if you're rich, you're blessed. If you're poor or if you're sick, you're cursed by God. Jesus just says flatly, it has nothing to do with either of those things. Isn't it amazing? The resurrection of Lazarus, you can't find that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, We wonder, such an amazing thing. Well, how could they leave it out of their gospel? And you wonder, here we have Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus weeping. Uh, Is it too much? I don't know why John would include it and the others wouldn't. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. All right, this kind of a picture of a humble, condescending God. John makes a big deal of this here in his gospel. And just a tiny little detail, but the, the, the Mary at the tomb sees Jesus resurrected, and we assume, boy, after his resurrection, you know, bolts of lightning are shooting out all over, uh, but she confused him with a gardener. It's a small little detail, but we find it um, in the book of John. And so, um, of course, John comes to the conclusion here in 1 John that God is love. I mean, more familiar words than those three. But it's just kind of interesting. Is this actually correct grammatically? I mean, we say God is love. Look at the other uh, attributes here. We would say God is merciful, but would you say God is Mercy, or would you say that about a person? We'd say God is just, but would you say God is justice? You would say he's kind, but would you say he is kindness? He is gentle, but would you say he is gentleness? He's forgiving, but would you say he is forgiveness? He's humble, but is he humility? See what I'm saying? But we would say normally, well, God is loving, but to say he is love itself, uh, this really has a deep meaning. God is love personified. And all of these other attributes here, his mercy, justice, kindness, gentleness, forgiving nature, humility, uh, everything is encompassed in the word love. He is love personified. That was the conclusion John came to. And what I want to spend a little time before we go to Gethsemane and the cross, and, uh, and I worry here, how are we going to talk about all of these important things in such a short time? But if there is a heart of the Bible, to, as I see it, it is these five chapters from John 13 to 17. Uh, there's, there's no more deeper theology um, than these five chapters, I think. And, uh, of course, Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples, and now he has just a little time before he goes out to Gethsemane to give them a message. And I just want to point to some of the highlights uh, here in these few chapters. And now I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Of course, you can't command that, can you? But this is what Jesus is commanding them to do. Love each other. If you have love for one another, then everyone you will know, everyone will know that you are my disciples because this is the mark of a disciple of Jesus, that they love each other. And it's interesting, we, don't we often have the, uh, the mindset here that, uh, boy, there is such a long list of rules. God is 
somewhat restrictive. We have to do all of these things. We have to do them just right. And sometimes, don't we just, boy, let's just break out and let's just be free. But of course, this, I mean, if everyone treated you this way, if everyone loved one another, would there be freedom? Would you ever have to lock your door? I mean, you'd be completely free. So all the additional rules that God has given is because we're not following the the one rule of his kingdom, which is to love other people. Now, of course, Satan's kingdom, which he tries to promote as this is the kingdom of freedom, do what you want. What happens when you selfishly try to put other people down, promote yourself? Well, then that's the opposite of freedom. Right, so this really is the kingdom of freedom, and the, the one rule is pretty, pretty simple. Um, love others. And okay, and he goes on. We read this a week ago, but I think it is so critical for understanding the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way to get there? You notice the subject matter is, and for all of us, our destiny is to come face to face with God. That is the subject. How do we get to the Father? And Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. And I think the implication here is pretty clear. Uh, from Philip's perspective. Okay, Jesus, we have had a good look at you. We love you. We trust you. Now, let's see the one who is, and it's implied, but he doesn't say it, the one who's a little different than you, Jesus. Let's see that one we've been reading about, and let's see the one who did all those things. Uh, Maybe the one who's just maybe not quite as gentle as you. Can we see him? And of course, Jesus' response, for a long time I've been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So the disciples here, clearly there is a discrepancy in their own minds between Jesus and the Father. So this discussion goes on. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. Why do we need that helper? He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. Philip, you disciples, you've all just exhibited that you see me and here you see the Father. Somewhat different. You need the helper who will come. What's he going to do? He's going to reveal the truth about God, the Father. The world cannot receive him because it cannot see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and is in you. And these five chapters are so much. I in you, you in me, the Father in you, the Holy Spirit in you. Um, it's very complex, but the Holy Spirit comes to really refine and to enhance our picture of God. Okay, what kind of a relationship does the Father want to have with us? I don't call you servants any longer because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because I have told you everything I heard from my Father. Now, what's incredible here is, of course, to think that the God of the universe, the one with all the power that the relationship he wants to have with each one of us is a friendship. Okay, now that's that's stunning in itself. But then also, what else is in here? What is implied to be a friend of God? It's to understand what God is doing. Okay, we're not 
to be mindless. We have no idea what's going on, but we are actually to understand what God is up to about his character, his principles, his methods, all of the things that he is trying to do. And a friendship really implies that. I mean, you speak honestly with a friend, you understand uh, what your friend is doing. Okay, when it goes on. And notice, I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. What would be too much for them to bear? When, however, the Spirit comes, and again, this is implied in the answer, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. And I think the implication is what you really can't bear is the full truth about the Father. You can't bear that. But yet he goes in and he, he tries to lead them there. And here, here I think is just one of the most wonderful, if there's a, a high point in Scripture, I think it is this in John 16. I have been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and to tell you plainly about the Father and the whole Bible. I mean, if we can just list all the symbols and the parables, the illustrations, there are very few times when there is anything in the Bible that is labeled as plain, clear, simple, straightforward. And so now when Jesus comes along and says, here, this is distilled truth, plain, clear, no parables, no dark speech, here it is. When that time comes, you will make your request to him, the Father, in my own name, for I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. Why? For the Father himself loves you. Now, the implication here is quite deep. You know, Jesus, our intercessor, this is uh, um, intercessory language. We have Jesus pleading with the Father in between. And notice here, the description here is in this time, when you really come into this understanding, I will not plead with the Father for you. And this can be seen as uh, intimidating. And I know probably many of you here have grown up with the idea that there will come a time when we live without an intercessor and it can be taken as a threat. But I think the role of intercession is not to shield us from anyone's wrath. The role of intercession is to bring us closer to God, face to face with God. It is the, works the other way. All right. And so when Jesus steps aside and says, I'm not going to plead with the Father with you anymore, um, it's actually incredibly good news because when he does that, and of course, who's the one in between? The one in between is God himself. Jesus is God. The intercessor is God. And in that day, notice what do we understand? We understand that the Father himself loves you. Did Philip understand this when he's asking, okay, don't we want to see the Father? This is the greater understanding that is almost too much to bear. And I like here another translations where Jesus says, I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. So intercession ultimately comes to an end. And intercession comes to an end when we have come face to face with God. And then the role of intercession, which is to bring us to that point, is over. So that's a very positive thing, and we see eventually that the Father is just like Jesus. The Father himself loves me. And that's the whole message. That's why Jesus came. All right, so we come from this, this upper room and this incredible message and really climaxes with this in John 17. And eternal life means to know you. I know it's continually climaxing here, but I guess it, it, it kind of merges into this. What is eternal life? Living forever now, ultimately, eternal life is to have this intimate, personal, relational, 
knowledge of God. And that's all based on a knowledge of his true character. Um, a wonderful thing. This is the whole point. To know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ. It's to know Jesus Christ because really the only way we can know God is to know God through God's life on earth. Jesus came to that we may have that knowledge of God. I have shown your glory on earth. And as we've said many times, that glory was not power in terms of intimidation, a physical brightness. The glory was the character. I've shown your glory, your character on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do, which is interesting. He hasn't died yet. And he's already telling his disciples, I finished the work. Okay, what was the work? I have made you known. I've made known the Father. Or some versions have, I revealed your character. That was his mission. That's why he came. All right, so now we move on here and we just think about here Gethsemane and the cross. And uh, this is, is such a, a deep subject that um, I'm just going to point to a few uh, major things. And of course, as we go through the writings of Paul and further on in the New Testament, we'll have a lot more time to, to explore this. So I just want to come to some key points. And um, I sh should also just say that I'm working through this myself. All right, so we'll just discuss some ideas that I have and um, hopefully we come to some greater understanding. But notice that the message, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost, but for us who are being saved, it is God's power. Okay, So for some, it's, it's meaningless, but for others, it is an incredible uh, manifestation. It brings power, it brings life. And uh, also, I just want to make the point that it is understanding the meaning is very, very important, I think. Paul describes, this means that every time you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the subject, the Lord's death. For if you do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body when you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you bring judgment on yourself as you eat and drink. So it's a subject, I think, that is limitless in the knowledge that we gain. But I think we should you know, head down that road as much as we can. We need to understand the meaning. So who are, who are the players here? Of course, God. And we've said God came that we may know him. He came to reveal his character, of course, that he is love. But beyond that, I think he came to reveal the principle of his kingdom, which is based on other-centered love. It's just like a politician. Uh, someone's running for president. Uh, what are the two important things? Well, it's the character of the person and it's also the way that they're going to govern, all right? So we slander a person and say, well, he's a drunk, he's a liar, slander the character, and then also slander the principles. He's gonna raise your taxes, he's gonna do this and that, all right? So there are these lies, and we've described the great controversy as very much a, uh, a political one. Satan has lied about God and caused us to believe he's a monster, really. Remember what he said to Eve at the tree. So God came to reveal his character and the principles of his kingdom, and I think Gethsemane and the cross gives us very important insights, not only just into Satan, the person, that he's exposed as a liar, as a murderer, but also the nature, the malignant nature of the results of going down that road. And then, of course, us, and I include the angels here because um, remember there was war in heaven. They've been very much involved in this. And the Bible describes even the angels learning something by the life and the death of Jesus. And you think they're not watching what's going on. Um, obviously, they're right there intently 
observing this whole situation. So what's revealed about the character of God? Well, just you know, in a couple minutes, but I think it is the brightest light that we'll ever see about the character of God on, on earth. And of course, the greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. So as we watch Jesus lay down his life, it is the greatest manifestation of love, the clearest light. Uh, how do we know God is love? Well, here, we, we, it's not just words, but it is an, an actual demonstration. And of course, we just watch what happens. You don't have to have a lot of uh, key text statements in here. We just read the story. And as we watch God submit to allowing his creatures to torture and to kill him, and then we just read the narrative. And there he is hanging on the cross. Everyone is shouting around him and uh, doing all of these things. And uh, you know, we watch him just say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, does that say something about God that, that he is that way, other-centered, loving, forgiving, even in that kind of a setting? And we just watch, uh, what else does he do? So Jesus seeing his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing near said to his mother, dear woman, see here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, see here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own. It's just as a statement about God under this whole circumstance, he looks out around all these people and spots his mother and makes sure that she's taken care of. It's... Is it a little detail? Well, it's, it says something about what God is like. And of course, who responded to all of this? The thief on the cross, of course, responded. One minute he's cursing Jesus, the next minute he's won by all of this. He you know, watches him forgive the people that are there and he turns to Jesus and of course Jesus says, I promise you uh, that you will be with me in paradise. All right, so these little interactions that Jesus have here on the cross are uh, amazing, really, in what it says about the character of God. But, of course, the other thing we've said is the principle of his kingdom, which is other-centered, love others, serve others. Uh, this was ultimately revealed at the cross. And Jesus said, if one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. If one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of the others, like the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life to redeem many people. And perhaps as we see in the life and the death of Jesus, this principle of service, love others, give, perhaps it becomes uh, desirable as we see that even God himself is that way. Right, so there is that aspect, but um, just think here about Jesus, I mean God, having all the power and not using that power under this setting. And that's why I think it's significant that he said, no one takes my life away from me. You can't kill me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up and I have the right to take it back. And so we watch what happens. He's just gone through this horrible thing in Gethsemane, which I want to talk about in a few minutes. And then there come the guards. And we just read the description here. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward as they're approaching and asked them, who is it you were looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, he said. And of course, what he really said was, I am. The he is supplied there. But he said, I am. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they moved back and fell to the ground. Isn't that interesting? He just stands up and basically says, I am. And they all collapse back. They fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, who is it you were looking for? And don't you imagine? I mean, the Bible is just words here. But if we could 
he listened to the intonation and the voice after just collapsing to the floor after Jesus hearing, hearing Jesus say, I am. Don't you imagine they're a little bit hesitant here the second time? Who is it you're looking for? Well, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I imagine a little bit scared at this point. And Jesus said, I have already told you that I am he. If then you are looking for me, let these others go. And don't you imagine here, Peter has just boldly said, I will go with you, I'll defend you. And now he's seen. Uh, they just all fell back when Jesus said, I am. And so he grabs his sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cutting off the right ear. And the name of the slave was Malchus. And of course, we read on that Jesus said, this is not the way we're going to win this battle. And uh, look at the demonstration he gave those men who came to get him. Okay, he said, I am. They all fall back. And then what does he do? He puts a man's ear right back on his head. Wouldn't you think that would be a little bit of evidence to say, you know what, this is probably the wrong thing that we're doing here. Uh, but of course, they were deterred. And so he goes on. And the point I just want to make here is that this whole manifestation of God, his character, his principle is not just for you and I. Through the sun, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross and so brought to him back to himself all things both in earth and in heaven. And so when we read in Revelation 12, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against Satan and his angels. And Satan was thrown out that the war began in heaven. And so it makes sense then that what God ultimately did was to make peace. There was war, now there's peace. And what we have to ask is, why did the death of Jesus bring peace? Well, if it is, as we have tried to describe, that it was lies about what God is like, and now we see the clearest manifestation of what God is like, that ended the war from the heavenly perspective. At one time you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. And there are at least four or five verses just like this. I'm going to mention a couple of others uh, very briefly. But notice in each one of these verses, who is the enemy? It is always we are the enemy. God, through the cross, has made us his friends. And so if we're describing the cross as God has been against us, and now something happened that has persuaded him to be for us, that's exactly the opposite. We have always been the one who God has been trying to win. God the Father didn't need to be persuaded. We've just said, the Father himself loves you. So what is happening here through the cross is God is winning us back. We were enemies. Now God is making us his friends. Another verse that, that points to that in 2 Corinthians. We are ruled by the love of Christ. Okay, it's interesting to be ruled by that. Now that we recognize that one man died for everyone. All this is done by God who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins and he has given us the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then speaking for Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, let God change you from enemies into his friends. And we are God's enemies if we believe him to be a vengeful tyrant. The cross changed all of that. Now we're God's friends. Another one in Romans 5, for when we were still helpless, Christ died for the wicked at the time that God chose. 
It's a difficult thing for someone to die for a righteous person. It may even be that someone might dare to die for a good person. But God has shown how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. By his blood, we are now put right with God. How much more then will we be saved by him from God's anger? That's the other aspect of the cross we have to talk about. What is God's anger? We were God's enemies, but he has made us his friends through the death of his son. Now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? But that is not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. Okay, whatever meaning we associate with the cross, this is so redundant here, we better incorporate that the message of the cross is to bring peace and to bring us to friendship with God. Well, the other aspect here is the, I would say, the unveiling of Satan. We've talked before about why Satan was so much veiled in the Old Testament. He's there in many places, but it's really the New Testament. That's why it's again and again and again about Satan in the wilderness, uh, so much description of it. And this is really the point where God chose to expose and defeat Satan. And these passages are kind of interesting. As they're leaving the upper room, Jesus says, I'll not be talking with you much more like this because the chief of this godless world is about to attack. But don't worry, he has nothing on me, no claim on me. But so the world might know how thoroughly I love the Father, I'm carrying out my Father's instructions right down to the last detail. And I think at, in Gethsemane, in the cross, we see the sharp angle contrast between God's great love and now I think we see clearly, ah, the nature of rebellion. Let's explain this. Jesus warned Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you. Hey, would that include Jesus? To separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you turn back to me, notice he knew that he would fall, but he also knew he would turn back. When you turn back to me, you must strengthen your brothers. All right, so... Uh, we see this whole thing, and, and as I talked about the wilderness temptations, they're so similar to what was shouted at Jesus by the angry mob at the cross. And I think it's significant that we see the issues that Jesus was dealing with here. Notice the temptation. People passing by shook their heads and hurled insults at Jesus. You were going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Save yourself if you're God's son. Come on down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders made fun of him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Isn't he the king of Israel? If he will come down off the cross now, we will believe in him. He trusts in God and claims to be God's son. Well then, let us see if God wants to save him now. Just like in the wilderness temptation, Jesus baptized. The father says, you are my dear son. And the first temptation is, if you are God's son, show a miracle. And here again, the temptation is instead of giving, giving, serving, loving others, it is show some power, Jesus. Do something and that will win everyone to your side. Okay, he was, but he would never allow himself to go down that road. And so, again, what do we see revealed about Satan and even Satan through, if I can say that, his children? Well, Jesus said, you are the children of your father, the devil. That is your ways, your thoughts are after his character. And you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there's no truth in him. 
When he tells a lie, he's only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. I love the version that says he is the father of the lie, singular. And the lie is a lie about what God is like. All right, But he was exposed, I think, as a murderer. I mean, to even stoop to the point to kill God in the flesh, I think he completely cut off any sympathy, perhaps, that he had with the onlooking universe at the cross. And so... Jesus became like them, shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil. And I think he did destroy the devil in terms of exposing him as a liar, a murderer, and also exposing the, the nature of his kingdom. I mean, look at the people who are following Satan. As Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Look at how ridiculous they were that was exposed at the cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. Who would that be? He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. We don't think about the cross. I mean, it's kind of a humiliating defeat, but that he actually led Satan, his angels, as a public spectacle. Uh, that really was, was the net result of the cross. So I think there's that aspect. And this is a difficult one, but I think... At the cross, we not only see the great goodness of God and his character, but I think by contrast, we begin to see perhaps the malignant nature and results of sin. And going all the way back, before the human race fell into sin, of course, God warned Adam and Eve, you must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Of course, they lived a thousand years. What was God's warning here? Of course, what we described as the sin is at the, at the tree, Eve believed Satan's words. God has lied to you. He's an untrustworthy liar. And the, all of the implications there, she bought the lie about God. And is there a consequence to saying we don't trust God? Remember, sin, as it's defined in the Bible, is rebellion and it is distrust. Is there a consequence to distrusting God and saying we don't want to have anything to do with him? And of course... It's important that we understand who pays the wage. Sin pays the wage, death. But God's free gift is eternal life in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, that sharp edge that I think we see in Gethsemane and the cross is we see who pays the wage, sin, the results of sin. Do we really understand what does sin have a natural destructive consequence? And the opposite, of course, is eternal life in union with Christ Jesus. There's so many verses here. I just put in one in Ezekiel. Turn away from all the evil you are doing and don't let your sin destroy me. Sin is the destructive element here, not God. How can God reveal that sin is the destructive element? And um, I don't know, put this in here, but remember when we were reading through the, the martyrs, all these martyrs here, they die singing, rejoicing, so many of them. Um, and uh, we just wonder, did, what was Jesus going through in Gethsemane? Contrast when he was in the wilderness of temptation. He'd not eaten anything for 40 days and he just defeated Satan, right? And then says, beat it, Satan, after the whole thing is over. All right, now we contrast what is he going through in Gethsemane? Why does it seem like this is such a tortuous experience compared to like the martyrs who are face aglow and go through this whole thing? Let's just read a little bit of the description. Distress and anguish came over him. And he said to them, the sorrow in my heart is so great 
that it almost crushes me. What was that sorrow? Pray that you will not fall into temptation. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Okay, why did he need strengthening? In great anguish, he prayed even more fervently. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, what is he going through here? Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Who did he say was just coming to tempt? Satan has his hour to tempt and he's continually telling his disciples, hey, wake up, don't fall into temptation. Grief and anguish came over him and he said to them, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. He's not even at the cross yet. Okay, We're just out in Gethsemane. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little further on and threw himself face downward on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Once more, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cup of suffering cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, Jesus left them, went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And it's interesting if you look, what is this cup of suffering? And um, I left out all the ones in Revelation, but it is so often the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Okay, what does that mean? Here in Isaiah, you've drunk the cup of punishment that the Lord in his anger gave you to drink. You drank it down and it made you stagger. Okay, what is, what is this cup of punishment that Jesus is drinking? Well, of course, I find it interesting that they came by to break legs because you don't die quickly of crucifixion. That is a long, slow death. They came to break legs to speed death, really, so that the Jews could make it home by Sabbath. Um, and Pilate, of course, was surprised. He's dead already. Okay, what happened? Well, as we go back here, and as I see just a few minutes left, but let me just suggest, as we read these passages about the sins of the world being laid on Jesus, and again, is sin something that we could ever hold in our hands and we could put on a table and we could move it around and we can hit it with a club? Um, sin, remember, is distrust. It is rebellion. It's something that happens in the mind. Can you transfer sin onto someone? Or when we watch what Jesus is going through in Gethsemane, are we seeing the results or the consequences that would happen when we choose voluntarily to separate ourselves from God. I'll leave this up here in Isaiah 53, but it's an interesting description of the sins of the world being cast upon him. And so we think about what is God's wrath. We've mentioned this so many times in Romans 1, and there are dozens of examples in the Old Testament again and again about what is God's wrath. And Paul, it's so important, he brings it up here. God's anger is revealed, God punishes them, and then he describes how does God punish people? How does God pour out his wrath on people. And I won't read it through, but three times here in this description, what does he do? He gives them up. They, they choose to leave. God does not override their free will. He lets them leave. He gives them up. He gives them up. He gives them up to the consequences. But does God fully give someone up to the consequences of separation and of distrust? All right. And so it's interesting here as we read on in Romans that we read about Jesus. Because of our sins, he was given over, given up to die and was raised in life in order to be put right, in order that we would be put right with God. Is this significant? And I think his words on the cross, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? The same as why did you give me up? Why did you hand me over? Um, and so I think at the cross here, yes, we see the goodness of God. But we stand at this point here where 
we can choose this way, God's love, God's character, we admire that, we go in that direction, but I think he also wants us to see there is a horrible different direction that you can go. Do you want to see how serious sin is? I'm going to show you. Again, sin pays the wage. Now, just as the last couple slides here, as this great light of truth about so many things on the cross is illuminated, um, it seems that that light just turns around and it focuses on us. Okay, what is revealed about us? And we've gone through this list so many times about God, he came to his own people, his own people who called God by the right name. We are the children of God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They called him by the right name. Uh, they went to church. They studied their Bibles faithfully. Jesus commented on that. They, well, they were obedient to the law extremely. They were faithful in their tithes and offerings. They had mission and outreach projects. Jesus said, you send missionaries throughout the world. Um, and of course, they were very zealous to keep the Sabbath. So these people who were externally doing what we would say is such a good external list of things, that it was these people who crucified Jesus. What does that say? I think it's very, very important. Eternal life is to know God. And keeping the list does us no good if step one is not we know God. What does it mean to know God? It means to know God as Jesus in character. And so what is revealed? Well, Judas, of course, kept that list that he betrayed God. Peter so boldly said, I will stay with you to the end. And then, of course, he's swearing, I don't know the man. And the Jews who said, we have no king but Caesar, that they would actually choose an earthly king um, over God. And then, of course, what do the people shout? It's interesting, the name here is Jesus Barabbas, that they actually chose a confirmed rebel, Barabbas, give us Barabbas over Jesus. This is Satan personified here. I mean, we actually chose Satan over Jesus at the cross. I mean, it's, it's an incredible uh, picture, I think, of how deprived a people can be that are still keeping the list. I think that's why Jesus came when he did. So again, uh, as we read on in John 19, that the Pharisees came by and said, please break the legs because otherwise we're going to be late for the Sabbath. Okay, the, the cross for them was meaningless. But we contrast this with this description here. With a loud cry, Jesus died. The curtain hanging in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The army officer, heathen, who was standing there in front of the cross, saw how Jesus had died, and he said, this man really was the Son of God. The cross is meaningless to some, but for others, including this heathen army officer, he was so convicted that he would say, this truly was the Son of God. And I love here that the temple was torn in two because as we describe this sanctuary service, the veils are what keep us away from God's presence. We want to enter in to the most holy place. We want to be in God's presence. And so as Jesus dies and the veil is ripped, torn in two, I think the meaning is now we have seen the truth about God. We have seen clearly at the cross and now we can enter boldly in. So we can either be like these uh, Pharisees here or we can be like the army officer and just be amazed about what is revealed about God at the cross. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, certainly there is such a depth 
that is involved here at the cross. And I'm sure there are so many other things, important things, that should be said and should be discussed. But please help us as we think about these things to really come to the deepest conviction, as you said, your, almost your last words, which were that the Father himself loves us. And we really believe that if we believe that you are none other than God. Amen. 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 You are none other than God. Amen.